I want to talk to you this morning about the pursuit of purpose. Years ago, I heard Dr. Miles Monroe uh, preach, and he was one of the most influential preachers I'd ever heard. And uh, he made a statement, and this is what he said. Listen to this. If you don't know the purpose of a thing, abuse of the thing is inevitable. And after he said that, in my observations of life, I've discovered that that's absolutely true with everything from tools to spouses and everything in between. I, I once watched a man whack on a screwdriver with a hammer trying to chisel out a two-by-four, and then he got angry that the two-by-four was simply shredded and he broke the screwdriver. And he did not know that a screwdriver is not a chisel and that they serve different purposes. And we know this, and that the design of a thing is determined by the purpose of a thing. That the designer has a purpose in mind before they lay it out, and it was only after the purpose is determined that the design of the thing can take shape. I've watched husbands over the years treat their wives like servants and then be confused and startled when their relationship isn't happy and fruitful and their marriage begins to fall apart. We need to know the purpose of the relationships in our lives. Your wife is not your slave. Amen. It's true. It's not only true of screwdrivers and wives and everything else in between. If we don't know the purpose for our life, hear me when I say this. If we don't know the purpose for our life, our life becomes an unending string of wasted days and wasted nights looking for fulfillment and significance, but not realizing that our significance is found in the fulfillment of our purpose, not in the achievement of what the world calls success. I've met lots of millionaires who are unhappy. You, you following me this morning? The, the fulfillment of life, the, 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 the realization of your potential is only found when you pursue your purpose, when you do the thing for what you were born to do. Now, this morning, I'm not going to be able to help you with your individual calling. Because apart from an operation of the Holy Spirit, I can't tell you whether you're an apostle, a prophet, a pastor, a teacher. But we have a common calling. We have a common purpose. There are some things that we have in common just because we're human. Right? In, in, in the book of Genesis, the Lord, when he created man, and in the man were all men, he said he'll have dominion. I like how the original New Living Translation worded it. It said that he shall master life. I latched onto that because the common calling of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, no matter what our background, no matter where we come from, whether we're highly educated or uneducated, we all have the same calling of God, and that is to master life. And until we learn to do the fundamentals, it really doesn't, too many of us, we focus on our specialties. You know, and I'm not a big sports guy. I really, especially nowadays, I could care less about these overpaid athletes. But I do know one thing that you got people like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. I'm aging myself. I don't know who's big today. But back in the day when it was Isaiah Thomas and Larry Bird, and they, they were spectacular at their positions, but they were spectacular in their specialty because every one of them knew the fundamentals. Right? They could all dribble a ball. That's fundamental. Well, in Christianity, sometimes we want to be the great apostle of the world, and you ain't learned to manage your own home yet. 
We got to learn to do the basics. And if we focus on the basics, then we can move toward the speciality of our life. Because our roles will differ. We don't all have the same roles, but we do all have the same purpose, fundamental, basic purpose that's universal to all of us. And that's what I'm going to speak to this morning. Now, Brother Hagen used to tell us if it's easier to steer a moving car than one that's sitting still. So my hope this morning is just to get your car moving. Right? Because if I can get you moving in the right direction, the Holy Spirit can steer you exactly where you need to be. But we all need to know that we have a purpose. Because one of the things the enemy really loves to do is strip from us the idea that we have purpose. Because life without purpose is burdensome. It's 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 unbearable. Everyone needs purpose. And I didn't think I was going to go here, but I'm going to go ahead and go here. And I hopefully I don't chase too many rabbits because I shared this with my wife in the preparation of the sermon. I found over 600 verses that have to do with being good, doing good. And when I shared that with my wife, I said, love, you need to pray for me because I got 600 verses to go through. She looked at me. She said, it's going to be a long service. Because I so value the word, I don't want to leave out a single verse. But I know for the sake of time, there's a bunch of them I got to leave out, but I want to hit as many as I can. That means I don't need to chase too many rabbits. But years ago, uh, Reverend Keith Moore shared a a sermon. Brother Hagin called it the best sermon series he'd ever heard, and it was on longevity. And, and, And when he taught that, it made me do my own study. And in my own study, I discovered that one of the keys to long life is purpose. And this was years ago, and I, I think it's changed some, but I, I, in, in my reading, I discovered that the average lifespan of someone who went into a retirement home. Now, I'm going to throw this out there because we're on TV and online, and I'm sure retirement centers have changed since this study. But during this study, it was, it was the re- type of retirement home, you know, where you walked in and the place smelled, there was no decorations, and everyone was, it didn't matter if it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They're still in their slippers and their nightgowns and just sitting there with nothing to do. In those type of environments, the average lifespan from point of entry to the point of death is six months. And one time I was standing in, in, in Auschwitz-Birkenau, the Nazi death camp, and, and there's a hall in, in, in one of the buildings in, in Auschwitz, and it has pictures of, of a good number of the inmates, when you consider that there's something like six million people that went through, it's not all of them, but it's just it's a it's it's, it's a hallway filled with pictures, and when it has a underneath every picture, it has the person's name, it had the date they entered the camp, and it had the date they died, and as I was going through it, I noticed, and I started counting because I just I love to be analytical, and and I was going through, and I'm looking at all these pictures, and you know what I discovered? The average lifespan in a Nazi death camp, six months. The same as in a retirement center. And here's the reason why. The Nazis systematically stripped humans of their humanity and of their purpose. Right? It was only toward the end of the war. I don't want to give you a history lesson here, but we need to understand how important purpose is. A life without purpose. If you live long enough without a sense of purpose, you look for death. You long for death. Because death is an escape when you have no purpose. 
A sense of purpose will give you a long life because you'll have a reason to wake up in the morning. You'll have a reason to fight the fight. You'll have a reason to engage. You'll have a reason to press on. When you know that your purpose is not yet fulfilled, it gives you the ability, even when you'd rather lay down and die, it gives you the ability to put one foot in front of another and try one more time. But when there's no sense of purpose, death is welcomed. And the Nazis would systematically strip from people of dignity and made in the image of God the humanity and their sense of purpose, and death became welcomed. It was only later on when they would just ship them right to the chambers. Their goal was to inflict as much harm upon them as possible. For those of you that you've allowed society to tell you you are a human without purpose, you've accepted a lie that is dehumanizing and stripping you of your divinity and your dignity. And yes, I use the word divinity on purpose because you are made in the image of the almighty God. Everyone say, I have purpose. Go with me to the, go, you're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. I can't put it up on the screen today. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. Listen to this. We're going to move in the direction of our divine purpose. And realize that until we die many, many years from now, should the Lord tarry, we're going to die happy people. We're going to die a people who have fulfilled every dream, who have seen every, every vision made manifest, who have lived full lives, and, 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 and a people who step from this world into the next, knowing that everything God said he would do, he has done. Amen? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Everyone say, I have purpose. The amplified version of this same uh, verse says that the Lord has made everything according to his purpose. But what you need to understand is that if you are a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, his purpose is your purpose. And your purpose is found in his purpose because as his creator, he's the one that has the authority to both designate and define your purpose. Your purpose is not self-made. Your purpose is discovered. Amen. And we all have a purpose. Now go with me to uh, Psalm 37, verse 23. Because when you, have, when you know that you have a sense of purpose, then you also know that you have reason. There's a reason why you're here. There's a reason why you weren't birthed 100 years ago. Because the Lord needed you here today. He needed you in this generation. If he had need of you in another generation, you would have been born in another generation. See, you need to understand that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. You were birthed when you were birthed because God had a reason for you to be here today. You're here this morning for on, on, on purpose. So you and I need to collectively put forth the effort to divorce ourselves from this idea that life is meaningless and we are meaningless and we have no purpose. You, you are of infinite worth. In fact, can I say this to you? Love proved your worth. So to believe that you're unworthy is, is, is not a byproduct of faith. Unworthiness and condemnation is a byproduct of unbelief. Because you're worthy because he made you worthy. 
You are significant because he made you significant. You are adequate because he is your adequacy. So you are here in this generation, in this state, in this city, in this church because he has a reason for you. Our goal is not to make up that reason and to pursue our own devices. Our goal is to say, Father, what is your purpose and pursue that purpose? And you know, the thing I love about God is God ain't religious at all. Religion is always complicated. It's always hard to know the will of God. I don't know about you, but the churches I, got, I first inhabited when I got, they made the will of God so complex, no one but the preacher could do it. The rest of us were all thinking we ain't never going to be good enough. We ain't never going to amount up to anything. We're never going to know the will of God. The will of God is simple. It takes religious men to make it complex. It is so simple that even a simpleton can do it. You, you and I can all do the will of God for our lives. And then know that if we do the generalities, the foundational things, he'll steer us into the right role. Quit worrying about your role and your title and just fulfill your purpose. If we do our purpose, he'll give you a role. If you don't know your purpose, the only thing a title makes you is dangerous. Because you think that title makes you a master. Come on now. If we don't know purpose and we get a title, we think that makes us entitled. And so you get a title, you become dangerous to those around you because you think their purpose is to serve you. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. Right? And I remember years ago when we started a publishing house in Poland, and I appointed somebody to be my vice president because, after all, I had to be the prez. I was founder, I was pre I don't even know how many titles I put on that application sheet. And nothing worked. Nothing. No money came in, nobody gave us the rights to their books, nothing would work. And yet there was a need for it. I'm chasing another rabbit, Lewis. Why'd you prophesy rabbits? One day I was praying, I said, Lord, Poland needs these books. Yet ain't nothing happening. And the Lord spoke to me and said, nothing's happening because you got it all upside down. He, and this is what the Lord told me. You think I sent you to Poland so they could serve you. I sent you to Poland so you could serve them. And who you have as the vice president is supposed to be the president. Do you know how quick it takes me to change? Boom. So I called up Mark. I said, Mark, I ain't the president. Who is? You is. I is. Why is I? Because you the one. And as soon as we made that change, and it was just a little change. Everyone say little change. See, for God to get moving in your life, you don't need to make big changes. You got to just make some little changes. You just got to get your attitude right, and you got to start fulfilling your purpose. You don't got to be perfect. It's the doctrine of the Pharisees that demand perfection. You just got to make a move. I made a move. Pretty soon, money started pouring in. Well, Joyce Myers gave us the rights to her books. Creflo Dollar gave us the right to his books. Brother Kagan gave us the right to his books. Brother Copeland gave us the right to his books. And now, Compassion Publishing is the largest Christian publishing house in Central Europe. 
Why? Because of my title? No, my title was the hang-up. In fact, the more I got myself out of the way, the more God was able to do. So once again, don't worry about titles. Don't even worry about roles, because listen, titles change. Roles change. But the purpose of your life is constant and lifelong. It doesn't change. Is this okay this morning? Hallelujah, Father. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. When we understand that purpose is constant, when our roles change, we don't freak out. You can't even get demoted. Because your purpose gives every place in life meaning. Hmm? And no one can fire you from your purpose. They can fire you from a job. I've often told pastors who are thinking about, well, I'm going to go to this church because they'll hire me. And I say, well, that's great. But keep in mind, if they can hire you, they can fire you. And the same people that are calling you the Messiah today might call you the devil tomorrow. But no one can fire you from your purpose. This is the reason why you're listening this morning. If we quit setting our sights on titles and roles and we start setting our sights on fulfilling the purpose for which God birthed me, no one can fire you from that. And it doesn't matter what title you have and it doesn't matter what role you're filling. Your, your objective stays the same. Right? 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, listen to this. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. Everyone say purpose. To destroy, to loosen, to dissolve the works of the devil. Now, here's what I, we all know that in his role as Messiah, Jesus did what only Jesus could do. Ain't no one else could be the spotless lamb. Ain't no one else, and I know that's improper English, but bear with it because I ain't going to use ain't or aren't or isn't. Ain't is more anointed. Ain't has oomph. Ain't no one going to be able to do what he did. Only he could be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world through whom the entire world can find and has found its redemption by believing in him. But that's his role, his purpose. We can emulate. In fact, we're called to imitate, to do the same thing. And it was for this purpose that the Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy, loosen, dissolve the works of the devil. Now, how did he do that? I'm glad you asked. Go to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing. Now, I want to stop here because the Holy Spirit's a perfect teacher. Healing is good. But if the Holy Spirit wanted it to not be distinguished, he would have just simply said how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about and healing. But the Holy Spirit said he went about doing good and healing. So the Holy Spirit of God is drawing a distinction between the doing of good and healing, even though healing is good. 
And the Holy Spirit's such a perfect teacher. I know without a doubt, here's the reason. You don't have to wait until people start getting healed by the laying on of your hands in order to go about doing good. There will come a time if you'll go about doing good, you'll experience the healing. But if you ain't going to be involved in doing good, you're probably never going to experience the amazement of laying your hands upon someone and see them recover. Because the Holy Spirit drew a distinction so that no matter where we are in the evolution of our journey with Christ, whether we're just beginning or we are the apostles so highly anointed that we glow in the dark and float on water, anywhere in between we can still be engaged in the doing of good. And in the doing of good, we are imitating our master. You see in this? And so listen, this is, this is what the, the, the commentaries and the theologians said about this verse. That the doing of good is defined as this. Listen to this. Doing wonderful things for people. Bestowing upon them benefits and blessings. So this is what he was doing. Even when he wasn't healing, he was bestowing benefits and blessings. This is what Albert, is this okay this morning? This is what Albert Barnes said about it, about this verse, who went about doing good. This is what he says, whose main business, and he's referring to the master going about doing good, whose main business it was to travel from place to place to do good. He did not go for applause or wealth or comfort or ease, but to diffuse happiness. I had to look up the word diffuse just to make sure I had it right. It means to spread happiness. Well, let me read this. Another rabbit just ran by. To diffuse happiness as far as possible. This is the simple but sublime record of his life. It gives us a distinct portrait of his character as he is distinguished from conquerors and kings who do things for their own benefit. Conquerors and kings have one main interest. That's to increase their lands and their wealth, to make themselves happy. That's in opposition to our master whose main purpose was to make others happy, to diffuse happiness everywhere he went. So even when he wasn't healing, he was making them happy. How did he make them happy? By removing their burdens and destroying their yokes. He made them happy with their words. Because the Pharisees always made them feel condemned. The Pharisees would preach to them in such a way that they were beyond redemption. You were hopeless, you were helpless, and you were a gnat. Jesus comes along and he uncovers their dignity. And he preaches to them whether they're a Samaritan woman who's lived with five men at a well or they're a tax collector. Jesus treated them with dignity and then uncovered their beauty and made them happy. So he made them happy. He created wellness with words. But don't you know that when he, when he used Peter's boat and as a reward he gave Peter a record-breaking, net-destroying harvest? Do you think that made Peter happy? What about when he went to the wedding at Cana and the only he, he his first miracle? Now see, okay, you religious people, plug your ears. Because his first miracle was just to keep the party going. 
His first miracle was just, no, no, you can't spiritualize it in any way because wine has one purpose. One purpose only. It ain't to replace your electrolytes. Wine is to make you happy. And his first miracle was just to keep the party going. What was he doing? Diffusing happiness. And Albert Barnes says, you want to know what our master was like? Here is a portrait of his life. He went about making people happy. How did he do it? By doing good. His purpose is our purpose. Our master, listen to this, our master was keenly interested in making people happy. Our master was focused on spreading joy. When he found a bruised reed, he didn't break it. When he found someone whose flame had almost gone out, he didn't snuff it out. He fanned the flame of life. This was our master. Be ye like him. Amen? Now go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Can I say that again? Because, listen, if, as I unfold this, I am going to give you so many scriptures that you're going to choke. But you're going to know when you leave here this morning, you're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your purpose in life is to go about doing good. That's your purpose. When you wake up in the morning, God's calling upon your life is to spread joy. When you wake up in the morning, God's predetermined counsel for you is make someone happy. Not to be a Pharisee and run around telling everyone how unworthy they are. But to make someone happy, do something that lightens someone's load. If you've got nothing to give but a smile, baby, you ought to be giving it to every living person you meet. If the only thing you can bestow upon them is a compliment, then why be stingy with a compliment? Why not look at that woman who looks like she just got beat up by everyone in life, and why can't you just look at her and say, baby, you got beautiful eyes? See, I let my wife do it because if I do it, you know, that's sexual harassment. But my wife will give him a compliment, and I'll look, and I'll say what she said. But you know, it's amazing how you can change someone's day just by giving them a smile. And listen, especially in our culture today, we're too mean to each other. And as Christians, you and I aren't supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to be spreaders of hate. We're not supposed to be entering into movements of division. We're supposed to be unifying the brethren. We're supposed to be giving each other reasons to motivate one another unto good works. So your purpose in life is to be a spreader of joy, God's secret agent, right? You don't need a role. You don't need a title. In fact, sometimes the roles get in the way. All you need to do is be an agent of change. How are you making change? I'm going about doing good, and I got a license to love. You following me this morning? See, this is what I'm saying. It ain't hard. What is doing good? It ain't doing bad. And when you do bad, you ain't doing good. 
And it's that way in Hebrew or Greek or Latin or Aramaic, whatever language you want to say it in, doing good is doing good and doing bad is doing bad. And if you're doing bad, you ain't good. And if you're doing good, you ain't bad. And God's purpose for your life ain't bad because it's good. So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, here's what I want you to hear. We don't do good to become good. That's what a legalist does. That's what the religious do. The religious are always trying to do sacrificial things in order to become good. We don't do good to become good. We do good because we is good. I, uh, lift your hand if you're in Christ this morning. You gave your life to Christ. You are good. I don't care how you feel about yourself. Feelings ain't got nothing to do with it. And their opinions of you are insignificant and meaningless because they don't know you. God knows you. And God declares everything he creates as good. Were y'all here last week? When God looked over his creation, he declared it was good. So do you think he's going to look at the sun and declare it good, and he's going to look at the moon and declare it good, but he's going to look at you recreated in his image and say, no good? No, 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 no. That's what they say. He declares you beautiful. He declares you holy. See, holy, holy, we, we, mm, I'm trying to stay on track. We confuse holiness with morality issues. Holiness is nothing more than nothing broken, nothing missing. God is holy because he's the only one altogether whole. And I'm not making that up. That's the proper definition. God, God lacks nothing. You know why God never has to lie? Because he doesn't need a lie to fulfill a void in his life. He has no voids. Why does God never steal? Because God don't lack for nothing. Anyone who has everything they need and they're not lacking anything spiritually, emotionally, or physically, they don't lie, cheat, or steal. Why? Because they are whole. So when God says, be ye therefore holy, he ain't saying about being superior morality. He's talking about having nothing broken, nothing missing. You are altogether whole, so therefore you are holy. Amen? And that's his purpose in your life, not to make you superior, but to make you altogether whole so that you can be like him and you lack nothing. When I was growing up, I had such a low self-esteem, I lied all the time. I lacked one thing that every good liar needs, a good memory. So I got caught a lot. But I didn't lie because I enjoyed lying. I lied because I felt so inferior as a person that I would tell you what I felt like I needed to tell you so that you would receive me and accept me. But my lying was symptomatic of a lack in my life. When Jesus Christ filled that lack, I stopped lying. I didn't stop lying because it was prohibited. I stopped lying because I no longer needed to do it. Amen? Listen, when, 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 when a husband is completely fulfilled with his bride, he doesn't look at anyone else. I don't, I don't, I have not abstained from adultery because I'm afraid of getting caught. I have abstained from adultery because I don't need to look anywhere else. I am completely whole with her. So the, so the antidote to sin is wholeness. 
Not another rule, not another regulation, not another prohibition. But it's wholeness. So what God's trying to do is he's not trying to take anything from you. He's trying to put things in you because the reason you're broken is because things are missing. So when he replaces that which is missing, you're no longer broke. And when you're whole, you no longer have to sin. Hmm. So when we do good, it's not an illegalistic religious attempt to become good. We do good because we've been recreated in his image and created unto good works. So we do good because we is good and doing good is a byproduct of the one who is good. David said of the Lord, you are good and you do good. You are good, and you do good. So I say to you, you are good, so go do good. You're not doing good in an attempt to become good. You're doing good because if you are in Christ, you are a good person. You've been recreated in his image. But, Pastor, I don't always act good. That's because there's still something broken in your life. Pastor, that's too good to be true. You mean that even when I misbehave? Listen, can, can I chase another rabbit? I ain't going to nowhere get near the 600 verses. Oh, Lord. The love of God is not based upon your perfection. So we don't do what we do. We don't give sacrificially we don't love endlessly we don't do good in order to earn a greater degree of his love thinking that somehow when I reach a more perfected state he's going to love me more than he used to you need to understand that God loves the prostitute as much as he loves a preacher that 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 that, that, the, that even while we were sinners, that when we weren't seeking Him at all, that when we were in the depths of depravity, when you know, I used to think I had a. I used to tell you, I, I, I that I could tell you my story didn't make a man cry. I recently heard a church member share a story that made my toes curl. I was like, ooh, I better, I gotta pray in the Holy Ghost before I hear that story again. Because sin will take you places. And, but, you know, this is the grace of God. Remember this, when I, I told you all, y'all are the trophies of God? You would look at certain people and never know they ever went through a hard time. The grace of God is so great. You would just look at them and think their life has always been perfect. Then when you hear the story, you're like, you've got to be out. You did what? You can't see it on them because the grace of God has repainted them with love. And so, but, see, it, it, when this person was doing these things that made my toes curl, the love of God was theirs. The love of God was still flowing to them, and it was God that was wooing them, and it was God that was reaching out to them, even when they were sinners. And I mean, when I say sinners, I'm talking about sinners. That's where God loved them. The love of God wasn't made manifest when they became saints. The love of God was made manifest when they were still sinners. So when we do good, I'm not doing good hoping that God will bless me and finally start loving me. No, baby, he loves you right now. He loves you where you are. He loves you despite all of your flaws and your brokenness and your scars. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. 
right now. So when I'm doing these things, I'm not doing them to try to get God to, hey, God, look at me. Look how good I am. I'm doing all these wonderful things. No. I'm doing these things because God so loved me that he gave. And because he gave, I can't help myself but give. Because he went about doing good and he loved me, I, I want to go about doing good so I can be like him. I'm not trying to earn anything because if I could earn it, it wouldn't be grace. And it's all of grace so that no man can boast. I ain't got nothing to brag about when God does wonderful things. Because it's all his grace. Is this making sense? So when I'm saying we got to go about doing good works, I'm not talking about doing good works to get his approval. I'm saying just be who you are. You are good. You've never been allowed to think of yourself as good because they told you you weren't. They told you you were inadequate. They told you that you were somehow inferior, and you believe the lie. Even in Christ, you're still harboring little thoughts about the lie. Divorce yourself from the lie. You are altogether lovely. You are the apple of his eye. He thinks that you're perfect. And see, this is, he loves you so much. This is the reason. Mm. Years ago, Steve was in this service. You remember Sister Mary? I was making, when, when we first got to know each other, I was preaching, and I, I, I made a statement. I said, God loves you, but he can barely tolerate you. And Mary, who'd been in the ministry many, many years, she said that got her angry. And she went home, and she was saying, Lord, I can't believe that young whippersnapper said that. I can't believe he said, he said you love me, but you can barely tolerate me. Lord, you got to teach that young man a lesson. And she said the Lord spoke to him and said, that young man's right and you're wrong. What? The love of God is yours, but he loves you too much to let you stay in a miserable place. He loves you in the place of misery. Hear me when I tell you this. He loves you in the place of misery, but his love will bring you out of the misery. He loves you in the place of brokenness, but his love will bring you out of brokenness. He loves you in the place of sickness, but his love will bring you out of sickness. He loves you in the place of poverty, but his love will bring you out of poverty. He loves you so much that he's willing to change you every single day. But it's not the change that brings about his love. His love is what brings about the change. You're getting this this morning. So that's, we got to understand that we are created unto good works. So when we do good, we're just doing who we are. If the joy of the Lord is our strength and we've been filled with his joy, how can we make other people blue? I mean, if I'm filled with the joy of the Lord, then the joy of the Lord ought to be splashing off me onto you. And when you get around me, if I don't make you feel better about yourself somehow, some way, I didn't fulfill my purpose. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light, this is what the master said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your spirituality, that they may see your anointing, they may see your commitment and your devotion. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works. And in seeing your good works, glorify your Father who's in heaven. 
especially if they know you used to be the most stingy, most selfish, most demeaning person. Now suddenly you started going to that church and you're telling everyone they're beautiful and, and, and you're loving on people and you're giving them stuff. I saw you give that waitress a $10 tip and you only ever gave quarters. What's going on? They're observing and they're watching your good works and they're saying something changed in your life. What was it? Did you go to a Zig Ziglar meeting? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, you're working angles, ain't you? No, I, the love of God is bubbling up on the inside and I can't help but bless someone when, when I go to the restaurant and I see that waitress just got beat up by that other table. I want to do something to make her happy so when I leave, she knows that the Lord loves her. We're spreaders of joy. Do you know that the Lord, the Lord never called you to be a spreader of doctrine. We wouldn't have to argue doctrine if we just did good. Because doing good becomes our doctrine. And that's what they'll see. Didn't the Bible say that, that all men would know that you're his disciples by the way that you curse one another, that you declare your superiority over that church, that you declare the Pentecostals are better than the Baptists, and the Baptists are better than the Charismatics, and the Charismatics are better than the Lutherans. No, no, no. He said all men would know that you're my disciples by the way your love crosses racial lines, crosses economic lines, crosses denominational lines, even crosses from the believer to the unbeliever. Because the Bible says we do good to all men, now especially to those who are of the household of faith, but we do good to all men. How often? Every time we have an opportunity. Everyone say, I'm going to fulfill my purpose. Now, Paul told a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, and I need to get going here. I need to hurry up. Y'all are releasing too many rabbits. I, I, I've become convinced y'all come to church with rabbits. Because I'm chasing them all over the place. For those of you who don't know what I mean, talk to Lewis after church. Just look for the tallest man in the camp. And say, Lewis, what does pastor mean by rabbits? And he'll tell you. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 18. Instruct them. This is what Paul told this young pastor. So all I'm doing is what Paul told Timothy to do to his congregation. Instruct them to do good. And not only to do good, but be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That's what Paul told Timothy to instruct his congregation to do. And then Paul told the church in Galatia, chapter 6, verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good. To how many people? To all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now listen, if we think naturally, like unbelievers, we're going to say there's no way I can do good to all people every time I have an opportunity. Well, the problem, baby, is this. You're a supernatural being thinking natural thoughts. You're not including the G factor. You're looking at what you have and thinking, I can't do good to everyone because if I give away everything I have, I'm going to have nothing. Do you, rem do you remember the story of this young man? The Bible calls him a rich young ruler. He was a rich young entrepreneur. 
okay? And he came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, I really want to follow you. What do I have to do to have eternal life? And the Lord lists a couple commandments. He said, and the young man said, well, that, that's cool, that's great, because I've done those my whole life. I guess I'm in. And the Lord said, well, there is this one thing. There's this one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have. Now, this lets you know that the master was interested in others because in most modern translations, it would say, go sell everything you have and give it to the church. Go sell everything you have, give it to me. Go sell everything you have and give it to my ministry. No, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the young man, the Bible says, went away sad. Why? Because he had a great many things. It wasn't the great many things that he had that made him sad. It was the idea of not having those great many things. He was, he was given the opportunity to walk supernaturally with the Messiah, but he couldn't break a natural stronghold. And see, what I want to tell you this morning is when, I, when I'm quoting to you Bible verses about doing good and you're first thinking, well, if I give this, I won't have that. And if I get involved in this, I won't have time for that. And, you know, I've got to protect what's mine. You're thinking natural thoughts. And your natural thinking is going to prohibit you from living a supernatural life. We all, mm, <laughs> it ain't God that's holding back from us. It's our natural thinking. We, we, we want to have the benefits of a supernatural life. Well, I wish somebody would give me this, and I wish somebody would do this for me. And I've been there, baby. I understand. I remember one time I was in, a, I was in somewhere in the Ukraine, and this, this, this other missionary had given a gift of $75,000 to a Ukrainian church. And I said, where'd you get that money, man? He said, well, I went to go preach at a small church up in North Carolina of about 25 people. I said, you went to preach at a church of 25 people, and they gave you 75 grand? Can I have the name of the pastor? Because I'm a better preacher than you. And so if you went to that church and got 75 grand, I'd probably come away with 150. And I was thinking, man, I want to go preach at that church. Then he looked at me and he said, what are you doing that requires $75,000? Well, now you're just getting real and up in my makeup, man. <laughs> it's not God that withholds from us. For the Bible makes it clear he'll withhold no good thing from those who love him so he's not the withholder what's prohibiting us from living that supernatural life where we are daily loaded down with new benefits and things are flowing to us all the time is we're thinking naturally we're thinking well if i give this i won't have that and so we walk away from divine opportunities like the rich young ruler sad i i went to church you know and, and they took an offering did you give no of course not why not? Because if I'd have given, I wouldn't have been able to go out to lunch. Well, maybe if you'd have given, you'd own the stinking restaurant. Are you following? God, mm, I'll preach to the wall. God can do exceedingly and abundantly and above and beyond anything that we could hope or ask or imagine if we would simply believe him. And quit thinking natural thoughts. Well, two plus two equals four, not in God's economy. In God's economy, two plus two can equal four grand. So when the Bible says every time you have opportunity, do good. Quit thinking about what doing good is going to cost you. Whew. We're going to have to have part two next week. It's already ten after. All right, we're done. No, I'm not. I, can you all give me like five more minutes? 
I remember, you see, listen, my wife can tell you, I, 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 this is going to startle some of you. I ain't perfect. I know, I know. It's hard to believe. But it's true. And especially in the early days, man, I had a hard-headedness, stubbornness. Every time I heard a preacher talk about money, I knew they were just trying to get what was mine. And I had so little, I wasn't about to let it go. And when the, God, when the Lord first began to, I spent a year studying, because I wouldn't believe Copeland, I wouldn't believe Hagen. And I spent a year studying the Bible, and i got to say, if you don't believe the Bible, I don't know what hope there is for you. That's his word, man. That ain't, just a, that ain't a textbook written by men. That's a book written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. If it says it, believe it. If, the, if that book prohibits an action, stop it. And if it tells you to do it, do it just because it's written. Because if it's written, our uncertainty is, is unnecessary. And so I spent a year studying generosity. And I realized I, wasn't, I was saved. I loved the Lord. I was going to Bible school. I was preaching, but I was totally selfish. There was something missing in my life in that area. And after studying for a full year, she came home one day and told me about a, an exchange student who wanted an opera CD at the mall. And I told her, I said, let's go buy it for her. She thought the invasion of the body snatchers had finally happened, and I was a Martian. <laughs> and she wanted to know who I was and what I had done with her real husband. Because it was $20. I remember it was $20. 20 bucks. 20 20 whole dollars. And I gave it to her. We went, but it started something, Cleve. Then one time I was, we were leaving to go to Bible school. and I don't know about you, but there was years I never bought a new tire. I thought every tire store piled them high and sold them cheap. You all know what I'm talking about? I, there, none of my cars ever had new tires. I just prayed that the wires weren't showing through when I bought them. You all talk, know what I'm talking about? Michelin, what are you talking about, Michelin? I put four tires on my car for 20 bucks, thank you very much. And we were going to school, and there was another Raymond Bible School student out there jacking up his car because he had not one, but I think he had two flats. They were both on the rear end. And I, I, I knew we couldn't afford to put all new, even at the pile them high and sell them cheap, we couldn't put four tires on his car, but we managed to get two. And so we ran down there, and we bought two. I think we were late for school that day. We ran down there, and we bought two tires and brought them home. I had never done anything like that in my life. I had an opportunity to do good. Could I meet the whole need? No, there was no way I could meet the whole need. But see, we can't, if we see an opportunity, just because we can't do everything, we can all do something. And if all we can do is give a little bit, at least that's a helping hand in that. I can't meet your whole, new, whole need, baby, but I'm going to do what I can do because I want to be a part of your breakthrough. As often as if we have opportunity, two more minutes. We won't finish. We'll pick this up next week. I promise, unless it changes. <laughs> I'm going to do my best because I think this is important that we hear this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 says, learn to do good. Titus chapter 3, verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, if we break that down, here's what the Bible is saying, is if you don't meet pressing needs, you're the one that's going to be unfruitful. By withholding, 
you contribute to your own deficit. But by releasing that which is in your hand, you open up your hand for God to put something in there. Matthew chapter 25, and we'll close with this, and I won't even read the whole thing. You know it. You've read it a lot of times. In Matthew chapter 25, the Lord told a story about the end time, and there were two people groups. One people group, they missed every opportunity to do good. They saw someone naked, and they would not clothe them. They saw somebody hungry, and they would not feed them. They saw someone destitute, and they would not visit them. And there was another group of people. They saw the same things. They saw someone who was hungry. They fed them. They saw someone who was naked. They clothed them. They saw someone who was destitute and in prison, and they went and visited them. And the Lord said to the one, he said, as often as you saw this opportunity and you did not do it, you did not do it unto me. And I'm paraphrasing their response because this is, in essence, what they said. They said, Lord, if we had known it was you, we would have done it. But we didn't know it was you. We just thought it was a beggar. We saw an opportunity to feed someone hungry, but we thought that person was insignificant and below our pay grade, so we didn't want to get involved. We were too busy doing our own thing. And the Lord said, if you had done it, you would have done it unto me. But when you didn't do it, you didn't do it unto me. Then he said, depart from me, you who are cursed. To the other group of people who took advantage of every opportunity, they they saw someone that was hungry, they fed him. Did they know that was the Lord? No, they didn't know that was the Lord. They just thought it was somebody that was hungry. And the, the love of God was so deeply entrenched in them, they couldn't help but be an agent of change in someone's life. So when they saw that someone was naked, they took off their own tunic and they gave it to them. When they saw that someone was destitute and in prison, they went and visited themselves. They would inconvenience themselves to be an agent of change in someone else's life. And this is what the Lord said, and I'm bringing this to a close. The Lord said, as often as you did that, how many times? As often. Every time you did that to them, you didn't know it was me. But every time you did it, you did it unto me. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. The only difference between the two groups is one could not be inconvenienced and one could not be stopped. You see, our life takes on a whole new meaning when we dedicate ourselves to fulfilling our purpose. And if you haven't guessed it by yet, your purpose in life is to do good. For you're recreated in the image of God not to be the great apostle. That may be the role you inhabit someday. You're not recreated in Christ to be the prophet. That may be the role you fulfill someday. You're not recreated in Christ to be the CEO. That may be the role. But your purpose, you've been recreated in Christ to do good works. And when you and I engage in doing good, as often as we see it, as often as we have opportunity to do whatever we can, not only is God happy, but and I, I don't have time to show you. I'll show you this next week. When you do good, God rewards you. When you do good, God isolates you. There's a verse that actually says that when you do good, you'll be housed. And it means the presence of God will never leave you, even in a time of hostility, even in a time of pestilence. Those who are engaged in doing good. But see, when you don't do good, you got to do it yourself. When you do good, God is with you. God is for you. God is around you because what you're doing is you're opening up wide the channels for him to say, now let me show you what I can do because you've shown me what you would do. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Hallelujah, Father. And now I remind you, there were 600 verses. 
Jaleesa, if you would come up, and I want to ask the prayer team to come up, and we're going to bring our service to a close, but I don't want to bring this service to a close.